Uh, we're in the middle of a series um, called Live Like Jesus, How to Thrive in Life. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. I skipped ahead a little bit to preach about giving at the right time, and now I'm skipping back a little bit to preach about love. We're in uh, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, and Jesus is reaching really the kind of piv- the peak, the pinnacle, if you like, the, pr- the pivot on which his whole sermon rests, and he's going to focus in this part on love. On love. So core to the Christian faith, isn't it? God is love. The greatest commandments, Jesus says, are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. Love is at the core of his uh, sermon on the kingdom. And our culture is full of kind of messages about love, isn't it? It's quite a popular theme. That's kind of been fairly foundational to the way that people think in our culture. Love's kind of primary important. In fact, it's a fairly famous song, isn't there? came out of a certain decade, which I don't remember, but I'm sure some of you might. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Um, what other kind of things do people say? So things like, love makes the world go round. Or maybe on a slightly different tack, love hurts. Love is an important thing in our culture, an important message. Love also changes lives. It also gives us a sense of expectation. It can make you cry. It can make your heart pound. It's a powerful emotion. But love's not not just an emotion. The Bible talks about love being in action. That's how Jesus talks about it. Love one another. Love your neighbor. It's something that you do. And we wouldn't probably quite understand what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbor. And the Bible says, love your neighbor in the Old Testament. If it weren't for Jesus filling it out and explaining it a little bit here and explaining what love looks like. Let me ask you this question. What's your postman like? It's a deep one, isn't it? What's your postman like? You're probably sitting there thinking, I don't care. As long as the letter gets through the post box, it doesn't really matter to me. It's not important. I don't particularly have a relationship. Some of you are thinking, no, I know my postman really well. And he's a really, really lovely guy or a really lovely lady. Um, we don't matter too much about what our postman is. What we care about is the message that Suzanne was talking about. You know, those... For those of you who are young, what Suzanne was talking about was that in the olden days, people used to write with a pen and paper, put it in an envelope, stamp it with something for 20-something P, pop it in the post, and it would arrive in your letterbox, and it would be exciting, more exciting than an email or even a text. And those, those letters, it doesn't actually matter who carries the message and delivers it to your post box, but for Jesus, it's different. His... Whoever's carrying his message, it matters to him. Because it's not just a message to pass on, but it's also a message that's carried within us. There's a responsibility, Jesus says, to those of us who are carrying his message of love for people to be the message itself. That's quite sobering, isn't it? And not just to pass on a message, but to be the message itself that God's Love for us that transforms is something that we don't just talk about. It's something that's actually happening within us all the time, being transformed by the love, like Nick was saying earlier, the love of the Father for us. We carry the message with us. We be the message that we share. And so Jesus is about restoration through a restored people. So should we get into the passage? 
uh, together and look at how that happens. Uh, We're in verse 38. Um, Rather than just read the passage through like I normally do, I'm going to kind of speak through the passage, fill out the context and the the meaning of what Jesus is saying just so we get the fullness of it, which means I'm going to pause a lot. Um, It's here on the screen if you don't have a Bible. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Old Testament law had this law in it about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, to ensure fair punishment, to make sure that people didn't get unfairly punished, so that violence didn't get out of control and retribution wasn't kind of out of kilter and disproportionate to the crime. It kept violence in check. In Jesus' day, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth had become a kind of financial recompense. Somebody did something wrong, there was a kind of financial kind of kind of to make it better, kind of retribution. Rather than kind of a physical punishment, there was a financial recompense um, for the situation. But what had happened is that had become not just about state-sanctioned kind of justice. People had started applying it to their own lives, personally, in the way they treated others. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. They got me, I'm going to get them back in a kind of personal vendetta kind of way, getting even with someone, standing up for yourself. Jesus says into that context, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. It's important to notice first that Jesus recognizes the evil. Because it can hear, like sometimes we hear, you know, turn the other cheek, etc. But we forget, he says, don't resist the evil one. It is evil. People experience genuine injustice, real harm, genuine bad. And Jesus knows that. And he sees it. He says, don't resist the evil one. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He's imagining a scenario, if you forgive me, Rod, I won't actually slap you, just so you know. Back of my right hand against Rod's right cheek, and they would slap like that. It was a real kind of offense. It was a shaming. It was a dishonoring in that culture at that time. Shame on you. Real dishonoring of them publicly. And what the person would be due then is some kind of financial recompense for the humiliation that they've suffered. So what Jesus is saying is, suffer the humiliation and forego what would have been due to you. And if anyone, else, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So a shirt would be the kind of garment that would wear close to the skin, long all the way down. Um, and then there would be a, a second garment, a coat. Uh, poor folk would use that to sleep in as well. And the Old Testament law forbid anybody taking that cloak away from someone. Okay? It was, people had a right and an entitlement to their coat because the poorest needed it to be able to sleep in it. Um, and so you couldn't even give that away. Nobody could claim that from you. So what Jesus is saying is give freely what somebody could not even rightfully claim from you. Because you're entitled to it. You're entitled to it. But give it freely to them anyway. Give up your rights and entitlement. That's a big thing in our culture today, isn't it? My rights, what I'm entitled to, what I deserve. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. We've seen actually an example of this um, in the Bible. Um, It's using military language. Roman soldiers were occupying territory, they were the enemy 
And uh, you remember that scene when Jesus is carrying his cross and a Roman soldier tells Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross? It was a Roman soldier's right to be able to say to any member of the public, help, you know, forced labor, basically, I, don't want, I can't carry this or I don't want to carry this, carry it for me. And so Simon of Cyrene was forced by the Roman soldier to carry Jesus' cross on his behalf. And Roman soldiers could do that at any moment or any time. And they were a real enemy of Israel, of the, of the Jewish people. They really resented. They were a group of zealots who thought that physical resistance, they were a kind of part of a movement that wanted to turn over uh, Roman occupation. But your everyday person on the street would have seen them as an enemy as well. They might not have been resisting physically, but they would have really resented it. And Jesus says, don't just go one mile. Suffer the humiliation of even going two miles with them. And then Jesus says, verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you, and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. He challenges that sense of resistance from those who would take advantage of you. He's saying, go beyond your legitimate rights, legitimate expectations. He's talking about the kind of person who expects something from you and doesn't give you a chance to kind of back, you know, say no or say it's not possible. You know when somebody just asks you directly, can you do this? With no kind of, realise this might not be possible, I'm asking quite a big favour, it's really okay if it's not. Would you be able to do none of that? Just a kind of almost expectation when they ask from you. And Jesus is saying, give to the one. No, I think sometimes you get a little bit caught up with this verse in that they've asked you for it, therefore you give it to them. And what Jesus says is, give to the one who asks from you. He doesn't say, give whatever they ask of you. <laughs> sometimes you can feel a little bit bound up, can't we? Somebody's asked something of me and Jesus tells me, I've got to give it them. But I really don't want to. I don't think I should. I think it's going to be helpful to them. I kind of need it. <laughs> and you kind of feel in a bit of a bind. But Jesus says, give to the one. So be creative about it. It might not be you can give what they ask, but give maybe your time or an explanation and so on. Verse 43, Jesus moves on. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's referring to Leviticus 19.18, which says, love your neighbor. It doesn't say hate your enemy. But what had happened was people had presumed the kind of natural, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite, your fellow Jew. Um, Others... You don't have to love them. And they'd added, the Pharisees and scribes had added this, and hate your enemy. But Jesus gets asked that question, doesn't he? In Luke, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the teacher asks him, and who is my neighbor? It's a good question. Because people had been presuming, your neighbor's just your fellow Israelite. Don't worry about other people. And Jesus corrects them and says, no, even the Samaritans. You know, it's the one who loves. Everyone's your neighbor. Love Everyone. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he was saying before, don't resist them, don't retaliate. Now he's going saying, go even further. Love them, bless them, pray for them. Pray for your opponent, your enemy, the one who has wronged you, so that you may be sons, he's talking about inheritors rather than gender, of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So why, why, why don't resist? Why don't retaliate? Why pray, bless, 
etc. for enemies, love your enemies, because that's what your father is like. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, um, than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Tax collectors and Gentiles get a bit of a hard time. Don't <laughs> but what he's saying is people out there in the world, they, they just kind of, this is what they do. Even they love their own. But love your enemies. Don't be shaped by the world around. Even the worst of people does that. You, therefore, Jesus concludes, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) There's ever a hard teaching or saying, that's it, isn't it? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus has been saying this whole sermon so far is look beyond the law, look beyond the rules. There's a greater righteousness at stake, he says. The 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 righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is the perfection of the Father. And to that, there's no limit, is there? There's no limit to the Father's perfect love for us. He's saying, be like him. That that was always the intention of the law. In fact, earlier in Leviticus 19, where it says, love your neighbor, it says this, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That was the deeper meaning and intention of the law the whole way along that we would be like our Father in heaven, holy, loving, just like he is. So three questions for us today as we look at this passage. Here's the first one is, who is shaping you? Who is shaping you? I wonder if you've got any enemies. If you've got any enemies. That sounds a little bit strong, doesn't it? We don't tend to like to think of ourselves as having enemies, people we're really at odds with. But how about people who dislike you? People who wind you up? Anybody who annoys you? Anybody who you don't really get on with? Perhaps people who've treated you unfairly? Maybe you've suffered injustice at their hands? Got anybody like that in your life? Because there's lots of that in this world, isn't there? There's lots of anger around us. There's lots of injustice. There's lots of us and them talk. There's a lot of judgment, of retaliation, of that sense of getting even, getting what I deserve, what I'm entitled to. Resistance, protecting yourself, knowing your rights. I really uh, like... Any of you read Huckleberry Finn? Read Huckleberry Finn? Um, This writer mentions it in his when he talks about a feud, and Buck says this. Uh, What's a feud, Buck? Why, where was you raised, Huck? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Tell me about it. He says, well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in. And by and by, everybody's killed off and there ain't no feud anymore. (laughs) But it's kind of slow. And it takes a long time. (laughs) And that's the kind of atmosphere that we can often live in. The world around us. A sense of injustice and anger. Who's shaping you? We can be shaped by this world around us, can't we? The atmosphere of it. The Bible talks about God having an enemy. 
sometimes called the adversary, the god of this age, the ruler of this world. And the atmosphere he's trying to create is one where people are divided from one another. He's trying to build a sense of bitterness in people, resentment that grows into a bitter heart. He's trying to make people hard-hearted towards others so they can't receive the, the help and support and love that they need. He's shutting people down towards one another. He's out to hurt others, cause anger. He wants people to be withdrawn from one another and from life. And it's possible for that kind of atmosphere in the world to shape us. And the Pharisees and the scribes were kind of shaping this love your neighbor and also hate your enemy around what was going on in the world. But the Old Testament intention was always love, even towards the enemy. Exodus 23 says this, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey goes astray, bring it back to him. Proverbs says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. Or if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. Because the world has always needed more than just being loving towards your kith and kin. That's what everyone does. Even the worst of human beings. If you read their stories, their families are often well-loved. That's not my memory of my dad. I don't remember him being like that. The world needs more than just being kind to kith and kin, which is, to be fair, hard enough sometimes. The world needs the love of Jesus for our enemies. It needs the Christmas message, doesn't it? It needs the message that the world needs a saviour to come and rescue us from all of this unloveliness to show us what love really is. That's the kind of love that the world really needs. That's the kind of love that we really need, the kind of love that transforms us. The world needs that baby in a manger who's going to be born into a world of people like Herod to live the perfectly loving life, die on a cross, and as he's dying on the cross, say of his executors, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of love that the world needs. They need that baby in a manger to die on a cross between thieves and tell them, today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's the kind of love we need. Verse 46 and 48, Jesus says, if you just love those who love you, you're no different to anyone else in the world. Nick was um, bringing that contribution earlier about the importance of the Father's love. That's the thing that transforms us. That's the things that changed our life. And that's the thing that makes a difference in the world. That's what the world really needs. And we're no different if we resist, retaliate, get even. If we slap, counter-sue, resist those who exploit and take advantage. If we just want to exact justice ourselves. Instead, Jesus says, love, pray, bless, be generous, be gracious to them. Be like Jesus. Who's shaping you? Second question is this, how's it going at developing the family likeness? Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I think I mentioned before, the criticism that gets leveled at Jesus throughout this sermon is it's idealistic, it's impossible, it's utopian, 
Nice idea, but not really doable. Jesus tells us that when we experience the love of God towards us ourselves, even though we were his enemies, that begins a journey in us that reveals the presence, the life, the love of God that transforms us into Jesus' likeness. If you're a Christian here today, at some point in your life, you realized at a moment in time that you had not treated God as he deserved, that you were his enemy, that at the very least you had ignored him, turned your back on him, rebelled against him in some way. God is not like, God's a person, isn't he? He feels things. Just think about for a moment, when somebody ignores you, and I want you to think about the person you have loved the most. Imagine the person you love the most. You've given them everything. All of you. You've just poured it out for them. Just imagine if that person then ignored you completely, wanted nothing to do with you, turned their back on you, and treated you badly. Imagine the sense of injustice, of pain, of hurt. Some of you maybe have even had that in your life. The person dearest and nearest to you turned their back on you. That's us in the story. He created us. He gave us life. He's loved us unendingly. And yet we turned our back on him, ignored him at best, and at worst did a lot worse than that. And yet what's God done? What are we celebrating in this season? The fact that God, in his love, had chosen to send his son, just like Nick was saying, the father loved you so much, he sent his son to become human flesh, to live the perfect life we haven't lived, to be perfect as we're not. Die on a cross for the sins that we've committed, even though he hadn't sinned at all, so that we could be raised just like him. That's the love of God, isn't it? That is amazing, isn't it? If you just imagine how you feel towards somebody who wrongs you and hurts you as an unjust towards you, you would never, like naturally, you would never do anything like that for them, would you? You don't want to go near them. You want to steer clear of them. God pursues us to the point where he even sends his son to die on a cross in human flesh. That's love, isn't it? And that love is transformative. That, the experience of that love of God for you in Christ is the thing that transforms your heart, isn't it? Makes you realise what love really is. I've gone way off my notes here. What was I even talking about? Oh yeah, family likeness. Back to notes. What's your family likeness like? In our family, it's a certain hairline, which hit me very early on. People often ask me, did you ever have hair? And I'm like, yes. Look at Seb's. And then in a few years' time, I'll say, look at him again. That's how quickly it happened. Bang. Like that. Boy doesn't stand the hope. On both sides of my family, receding hairlines all the way. Jess and Florence both have a certain mannerism with their tongue. If they're concentrating on something, they'll put their tongue between their teeth. It's really cute. They've both got it. It's on Jess's side of the family. Put their tongue between their teeth. It's just like, oh, there's a the tongue. You pick up mannerisms, don't you? And you've got physical resemblance to your family. 
Jess often says I'm quite like my dad. I've spent time with him. The kind of person he is has shaped who I am. It's shaped my character. It's shaped, impacted my life. And when God adopts us into his family, he becomes our father. We become his children and we take on his family likeness. He reveals his love for us, his likeness, and we take it on board and it transforms us. What's the family likeness? It's that indiscriminate love. The key point in the passage is, your father sends the sun and the rain on the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. That's his indiscriminate love for people. Good and bad people enjoy all the benefits of God's general mercy all the time. That's God's indiscriminate love. That's what the Father is like. That's the kind of love that forgives even those who would execute him. And we're called to bring this family likeness of indiscriminate love into our families, into our workplaces, our communities, with a kind of God's postman, if you like. But the way we carry the message matters. It's a huge responsibility, isn't it? Because the whole of your life takes on a meaning and importance that it otherwise didn't have. This, um, the answer to this call to be perfect, it's a difficult one, isn't it? This is what we want to do naturally when we hear that. I'll tell you what, I've heard that sermon. I've seen what Jesus says. I'm going to try harder. Next week is going to be different, people. You walk up with a renewed sense of, I'm going to give it another go. I've heard it. I'm determined. I'm going to be perfect, just like he is. I'm going to nail it. You think, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to do better. You ever walked out of a preach like that? Sometimes you feel really stirred, but in your naivety, your response is, if I just try a bit harder, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail that. I'll follow the rules. I'll keep up the appearances. But Jesus says no. You know, remember when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he's talking about, hey, you're a great teacher of the law, of the rules. And Jesus goes, yeah, but you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. You need a new heart with new desires to love and obey God fully. It's not about the rules. It's not about trying to do harder, try harder, do better. It's about something new and radical that's flooded into our hearts, that works its way from the inside out into the way that we live our life by the Spirit. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, which I talked about earlier, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We shall be saved from our getting even, our resisting people, our rights and our entitlement, and uh, I deserve to be treated better than that. Saved from all that. Because we were enemies of God once, but he loved us. And so the transforming love of God works its way in our hearts into the way that we treat even our enemies. Okay, I think that's everything on that. And then how's your time? This is the third question. How's your time with Father going? So if it's not try harder, if you're not meant to walk out here and just go, I'll do better next time, or get to your New Year's resolution and decide this is what I'm going to do differently. How does the love of God transform us and make us more like him? I saw this quote from Terry Virgo. It's great. Listen to this. 
He preaches grace just beautifully and wonderfully. Listen to this. He says this. Condemnation tries to master you. If you try to overcome it by keeping rules, you'll become a slave to legalism. That's what happens when you get up out of a Sunday morning and you go, I'm just going to try harder and do better. You're enslaved to legalism. Because victory rides on you keeping all the rules, and then you just get proud when you do. And when you fail, which is fairly inevitable, then you feel real sorry about yourself and self-pitying. And you're a slave to legalism. He says this, Grace releases you to enjoy God's love freely and lavishly given to you through Christ. That's what grace does. It frees you up. How? Right? This is the how bit. Discipline, not legalism, ensures that you keep yourself enjoying Christ's love. That's good, isn't it? If you want to stick something on your wall, stick that on it. Discipline, not legalism, ensures that you keep enjoying, uh, keep yourself enjoying Christ's love. It's the discipline of spending time with Father. It's not, I've got to, I'll try harder, I've got to read my Bible, I've got to say my prayers, I've got to, no, it's legalism. Even if you do it, you're all bound up in that. It can't go well for you. The outcome will always be bad, even if you do fairly well at it. It's, bad. it's just, there's no freedom in it. Grace releases you to enjoy the love of God. Discipline of saying, the Father loves me. He's loved me in the most wonderful way in Christ on the cross. So if I spend time with him, it will transform my heart and will affect the way that I treat people, even my enemies. And so it says things in the Bible, doesn't it? Hebrews, don't neglect gathering together as some in the habit of doing. Are you in the habit of kind of gathering here on Sundays? Are you in the habit of getting along to life groups? Not because it's the rules. To be part of the church, you've got to go to a life group. Be there on Sundays. Make sure you're at prayer. There. <laughs> Who wants to go to that kind of church? You can't win that, can you? Huh? That never goes well. Why do you do those things? It's because discipline enables you to enjoy the love of God freely for yourself. In, in Christ. So, can we make Sundays a priority? How are you doing at making Sundays a priority? The pandemic was a nightmare for that, wasn't it? Everyone just got kicked out of routine. And getting back into just being here ever regularly on a Sunday, spending time with Father together, with the family. How are you doing at getting along to life group each week? It's hard to get out in the evenings sometimes, isn't it? Yeah? It's not a rule to be kept. It's because it's a discipline that does you good. reminds you of the Father's love for you. How are we doing it? Spending precious time with the Father. Whether it's in prayer, together on Wednesdays like we were the other week. Whether it's just by yourself. Jesus is going to go on to say this in Matthew 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray. You know why you need times like that? You need it because of what Christine read out earlier from Zephaniah. Do you remember that passage? I don't either. Here we go. 3.17, Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You need to be reminded of that, don't you? Don't you need that? The Father loves me. 
you, if you don't get a steady diet of the Father's love for you, why would you want to do anything? Ever, really. You need to know his love for you. You need to know his love for you. Get before, close the door. The fear of missing out. You're not missing anything. The Father loves you. He's singing over you and exalting you. Over you. Why does this matter? I don't know about you, but I leak. I need reminders that the Father loves me, of what he's like, how he's loved me in Christ. We need it so we don't get on and go on resisting, retaliating, getting even, my rights, what I'm entitled to, what I deserve, but instead love our husbands and wives, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues, and even our enemies. It says in Romans 5, it talks about what produces loving character that endures being wronged, endures injustice, exploitation, being taken advantage of, of being shamed and humiliated, just like Jesus has said in this passage. And it says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's why we need to close the door and spend time with the Father, so the Spirit can be poured into our hearts afresh and remind us we're loved by him. So has the love of God come flooding into your heart? Maybe you're here and your life is a kind of duty. It's kind of the the rules that you do rather than doing disciplines that help you receive God's love for you. Maybe you're a Christian here today and the family likeness is just wearing a bit thin. Spending time with Father is so important. Get close to him. Be filled with the Spirit Know God's love for you.